Good morning, Terra family. And I think we're online for... Yeah, I just don't see the camera. But welcome to those of you who are joining us online. We're going to continue in our uh, Hebrews, our sermon in or our sermon series in the book of Hebrews this morning, which you'll find in the latter part of your Bibles. We'll be in chapter 2, looking at verses eight, uh, excuse me, 10 through 18 today. So feel free to turn there and put your, your finger there. Uh, that's on page 1188 of the Pew Bibles, the blue ESV Bibles, if you want to find that spot now, because there's not any corresponding slide today with the scripture on it. As you're finding that, let me just do what is helpful to do every now and again, at least for me, and that is to be able to find our place uh, from a bird's eye view in the book of the Bible that we're in. And we're not that far into it, but it's worth repeating uh, who the audience is here of this letter and the, uh, the main purpose of the author of this letter. So this letter was likely written to a group of Christians in Rome in the mid-60s AD. If you know anything about Rome around that time, it was on the cusp of some pretty serious persecution for Christians. Just before Nero, the emperor at the time, went off the rails and started feeding Christians to lions. So they weren't there yet. There wasn't necessarily martyrdoms taking place, but they were experiencing, the Christians at the time were experiencing a lot of persecution. And, and they weren't Christian by name necessarily, just by belief. Um, and that's helpful to understand, too, that some of the pressures weren't even from the culture at large in Rome, but also from their own people, um, the Jews who had not subscribed to Jesus as the Messiah at this point. And so there was this temptation on the part of these Christians to revert to a former version of Judaism that would have been easier because they would have been able to fall back in line with what many of their family and extended family and friends were believing um, and not have to deal with that conflict and the consequences of that conflict anymore. And so the author of this letter, which was probably a sermon that was written in order to be spoken or preached to this church in Rome, the author of this letter recognizes that there's the need for encouragement and the need for exhortation and the need for warning even. And we talked about in one of the first weeks of this series how even the warnings, the warning passages that come in this letter to the Hebrews are versions of God's grace to awake the people from the stupor, to awake them from the temptation to fall back into a different way of following after God that was no longer the true way because Jesus the Messiah had come. And so the author's conviction that, 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 you, that underlies everything that he says in this letter to them is this, that their in, endurance in the Christian life is going to be in direct proportion to the clarity with which they see Jesus and what he has accomplished for them. And it's true for us today, too, that your endurance, my endurance and following after Jesus is going to be in direct proportion to the clarity with which we see him and understand what he's done for us. This letter to the Hebrews is probably next to Romans or alongside it, one of the most difficult in the New Testament to handle well, to understand. There's a lot of Old Testament scripture passages that are cited and allusions to the Old Testament. It's challenging, and it's also challenging in its content. It brings up a lot of challenging issues that are difficult to fully address in the context of a sermon. So one of the things that we've decided to do is have a series of terror talks revolving around this book of the Bible and some of the challenging issues that it raises that it raises up. Historically, terror talks have been a living room style conversation uh, 
venue for us to be able to talk through some of the challenging cultural issues of our day, some of the touch points in our own lives that, we, that are contentious, both inside and outside of the church, but to foster an environment where we can have those conversations in truth and in love, speak truly what we understand God's word to teach about these things, but also to do so with charity, even with those who disagree. So this is a bit of a shift from more of the cultural issue to theological issues that are probably more in-house discussion points for us as Christians. Um, but we think that these, these topics are, are probably relevant and will, will hit where most of us are at. Now, saying that and talking to my wife a week or two ago when we first announced this, uh, the, the, the title for this first Terra Talk was The New Testament Author's Use of the Old Testament. And she's like, I don't, branding-wise, I'm not sure if that really catches me where I'm at. I see some smiles so apparently that was taken that way by some of you. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, this is relevant to everyone. Everyone who takes their Bible seriously could see these things as a stumbling block. And so it was helpful because it, it, it got Madison and I, who've been working on this, um, to think, uh, what's the issue beneath the issue? And the issue beneath the issue is how do we know we can trust our Bibles? There are some ways that seem strange that the New Testament authors will take and apply the Old Testament text that at a surface level, we might think to ourselves, how can I trust this book? That seems totally arbitrary usage of God's word. And so that's really the question beneath the question. How do we know that we can trust this book that every Sunday and in our own personal times of devotion and as families, we talk about and we read and we meditate on together and we encourage one another with how can we trust it? That's really at the heart of this terror talk. And this is just one angle to approaching that topic. There's lots of others, of course, in terms of, uh, you know, we could ask the question instead of how do we know that what we have in our Bibles today is what was originally penned by the authors, right? Um, textual criticism, that whole subject of how do we get the Bible that we have today? Lots of different angles. The New Testament author's use of the Old Testament is one of those angles to answering that question. How do we know we can trust our Bible? So that'll be next week. Uh, pretty much right after our service, 11 to 1230 next door in the office space. We're about halfway full for that. The space only holds 25 to 30. So please make sure that you let us know if you're interested in joining us for that, um, because there is kind of a cap to how many we can, we can fit over there. The other thing that I want to take a time to pause and do before we jump into Hebrews this morning is to just pray as we have been for some of the other local churches that, uh, we are in brotherhood with, um, uh, and by the way, we'll expand that to even national and global churches that we have connection points with. But for now, we've been focusing on the ones that are a little bit more local. Um, so I want to pray for one church in particular today that we haven't yet. But an update uh, heard from our friends down at Terranova and Troy earlier this week or late last week uh, that the, the offer that they had put on the new on the new building. They've all these years for 16, 17 years, whatever it's been, it's been a renting situation. Um, the offer they put in on a building in North Troy, just a little further north from where they are now, was accepted. Um, and on top of that, uh, they they also were approved by the city of Troy with a special uh, uh, a special use permit to be um, have this location be a house of worship. So that's good news. They're just asking for continued prayer for, um, uh, in light of the inspection, negotiation leverage from some of the things that have come out. But it's a good situation, it seems. It's just a building, right? But if you ask those guys, why is this important? They would say, because some of the vision that God has given us as a church to disciple those who call Terra Nova Troy home and to reach our city is probably only possible through having a space we can call and make our own. And so God is providing, it seems, there in this location here uh, that they've just had an accepted offer on. 
The church I want to pray for today specifically, though, is New Life Fellowship. Some of you guys know Pastor Nathan Detweiler, um, and uh, New Life is just up the road uh, in Wilton, by the just past the, the YMCA there. Nathan is a good friend, and it's a good church that we love. And Nathan's preached here before. We have vision and hopes of uh, possibly ministry together or at least gathering together as congregations and worshiping at some point in the future. Things like that we've talked about in the past. And so I just asked him this week, how can we be praying for what God is doing in the body of Christ at New Life Fellowship? And he said, leadership. He said, um, at all levels, please pray for wisdom for the elders. We also have a couple of elders in the pipeline that are discerning God's will as to whether he's calling them to serve the church as leaders in that way. And they also have an initiative where they're kind of engaging the community, the, the body at large, and in, in kind of being a part of um, informing the leaders uh, of some of the decisions uh, that they're looking to make. So leadership is a big um, prayer request for them, which is just a form of discipleship, right? If all churches are called to make more and better disciples right now, they just need prayer for that to be happening effectively and well to God's glory at the, at, at the level of leadership in their, in their church. So would you join me for a moment in praying for New Life Fellowship? Father, I thank you for uh, the body of Christ, your body, your bride, and that you've called us to be a part of it. I thank you that we are not it. We are not alone in what it means to be a part of your body. We are not alone in the work as your hands and feet of making more and better disciples. Um, and there is strength in the solidarity of knowing we have so many good churches locally in this region who love you and are, have been called by you to make you known, to know you and make you known. We pray for New Life Fellowship, Lord. We, we pray that you would bless their, um, uh, their, their faithful endeavor to disciple leaders to lead that congregation, to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. I pray that you would give wisdom and discernment to the leadership of that church, their elders, as they make decisions um, that would move forward the vision you've given them. And I pray for those who are in that eldership pipeline, that you'd grant them discernment, even as you have uh, men in our own congregation along the way. Um, you've been faithful to provide there and provide that kind of discernment as to how you're calling them. Please do that for those men as well. And for their congregation to be engaged um, in, uh, as the priesthood of believers and in informing their leaders as to what you've laid on their hearts. I pray that, um, Lord, you would provide a venue and a setting for those conversations to happen in ways that would be um, empowering to those who are being led and encouraging to those who are leading over there. And Lord, we just give you praise and thanks for your provision, it seems, for Terra Nova Troy, for this space in this building uh, and I pray you would keep in, in their view the main purpose, main point that you laid on their hearts, which is to use that space for your greater glory and to move forward the vision you've given them. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. Just briefly, if you remember a few weeks ago, we were talking about how superior Jesus is. Um, to everything, namely to the angels, the reason that the author of Hebrews chose the angels to compare Jesus to is because within creation, he and traditionally Judaism has seen the angels as the most glorious, almost crown jewel, if you will, in terms of glory of God's creation, but that the angels can't even come close, can't hold a candle to Jesus. He's that much superior to them. This past week, in contrast to that, Pastor Reuben unpacked for us chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. 
which was all about the humility of Christ, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. And even we could just stop there and say, wow, that tells us something about God, that he would take on human flesh, leave the glory of the heavens, and, and to come and be with us. But today starts to move from that statement about his humility to the purpose behind it. That's what verses 10 through 18 is about today, that it wasn't arbitrary and for an arbitrary reason that Jesus left the, the heavenlies to become a man, but that there was a purpose to that. And that's what we're going to see here as we read together Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. So if you're not already there, I'd encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. And I would ask that if you're able, you would join me by standing for the reading of God's word. Hebrews 2, verses 10 through 18. For it was fitting that he, that is God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, that being ourselves, should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Just remain standing for a moment as we pray one more time together. Father, I pray that you would make the truth of your word clear and apparent to us. And not just that, not just at the level of our minds. But would you take and apply these truths to our heart as you reveal yourself to us and as you reveal to us who you are calling us to be and who we already are for those who are in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The main idea, if we're going to stick with the better than theme, and we are, um, is this, that... Uh, we have a better family because of what Jesus has done for us in his humility by virtue of becoming a man. And I'm going to expand upon that with a, a sentence, if you will, a statement that I think summarizes the passage of Scripture that we're in today. And it's this. Jesus' solidarity with us means suffering for him. And salvation for us. Jesus' solidarity, his oneness with us, the fact that he identifies with us in some way, which we'll talk about, means suffering for him and salvation for us. That's in a nutshell what the author of Hebrews is saying to us and to his readers here. We're going to break this down into three parts, pretty self-explanatory, really to come out of that. 
uh, sentence. First, we'll take a look at what it means that Jesus identifies with us, particularly as his family, uh, in verses 11 through 13. And then the result of that for him, which is suffering, verses 10 and elsewhere, and the result of that for us, which is salvation, verses 14 through 18. And we'll talk about what that salvation includes and why that's such good news. So first, Jesus' identity with us as a family. This passage is all about Jesus identifying closely with you and me. That may be counterintuitive for you. Don't know that I, certainly, maybe you, don't normally think about how much you have in common with Jesus. Um, I mean, even in this passage in verse 11, the first half of that verse says, He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Well, he who sanctifies is Jesus. Sanctifies means set apart, make holy, purify. The reason he can do that is because he is sinless. He is other than. So he certainly is very, very different from us um, in, in a certain respect. And it's important to understand the context that the recipients of this letter were in. Was, it was influenced by this uh, Gnosticism, this, this Gnostic theology or philosophy, if you will. This idea that the material world that we live in is evil, it's to be despised, it's to be rid of. We need to get out of these mortal bodies because the spiritual realm is the thing that is pure. And so... Just like it's true today that there are cultural philosophies that infiltrate the church. It was true then, too. And so this Gnostic worldview had infiltrated the church. And that worldview made it easy to accept Jesus as divine, hard to accept Jesus as a man. He could be divine, but he couldn't also be human. This was a very difficult thing for the culture at large, but but even Christians at the time, to be able to grasp. And so the author knew that he needed to persuade his audience of the necessity of Jesus's humanity and the beauty of it, that it was a good thing that Jesus had to be fully human for the better glory we talked about last week to be achieved. And he had to be fully human in order to fully identify with you and me in our own humanity. And so that's, that's where he shifts from talking about how different Jesus is to how much we have in common with him with the second half of verse 11 for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. There's so much in that phrase there Uh, are all of one is the most literal sense of that phrase in the Greek. Now there's some ambiguity here as to what that means Um, more than you probably want to know, but in the context it, it, we, we don't really know what gen, that word one, we don't know what gender it is. It could be either neuter or it could be masculine. And the difference would imply he's talking about a situation in the one hand versus a person in the other. So let me unpack both those possibilities because at the end of the day, the author may have all of it in view. And all of it comes back to this idea of the solidarity of Jesus with us. If it's, if it's to be interpreted in this neuter sense, the gender is neuter, then it would be all have the same origin or all have a common origin, right? Jesus and us have a common origin. So what would he mean by that? He would mean that we and Jesus share a common experience of being human. That's the situation, the general situation. Or it could also be an allusion to having a common origin. Our situation is we have a common origin uh, as either an allusion to Adam as a common ancestor or Abraham as a common ancestor uh, the latter is possible, Abraham, because he comes into view later on in this passage in verse 16. Um, 
right, where uh, we're told that he helps, Jesus helps the offspring of Abraham. Well, we know that in Genesis 22, uh, with the account of Abraham's life, God comes to him at one point and, and promises to bless all the nations through his offspring. And so who was that ultimately fulfilled in? Well, the messianic person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is of the offspring of Abraham. So possibly it could be sharing in a common experience of being human. It could be sharing a common origin with uh, Adam or Abraham. If you interpret um, all have one source, all, all are of one to be in the masculine sense. Now it's in reference to a person. And so it could be interpreted this way. All have one father or all have the same father or more generally are of the same family. No matter what way you go here, all of it supports this idea of Jesus' solidarity with us. Um, and again, sometimes the ambiguity in texts like this are actually there intentionally because the authors want us to see all of the possibilities in view. And both of these things are true. All of these things are true, by the way. However, the latter meaning of our all, all have one father seems to be preferred because of the context of what comes next, where Jesus identifies with us as his brothers and sisters. And so if, in fact, that's what it's saying here, is that we all have one father, well, whenever you have any kind of shared origin with somebody else, there's a strong bond that comes from that. Think about those of you who, you know, whether it's high school or college, like one of your school alma maters, and you meet somebody Years down the road, who also attended that alma mater, like there's a bond there, right? Like if it was your college, if you happen to go to college and you meet somebody even a decade or two later who just graduated from there, you you, you can you probably, uh, you know, ate in the same dining halls, you know, maybe had classes in the same buildings, maybe even shared professors, uh, maybe root for the same sports team. So there's a bond there that immediately strike up by virtue of having a shared alma mater. I know for me, a good example would be uh, uh, my, my time at Camp of the Woods up in Speculator uh, in the Adirondacks, um, both in working there, but especially having gone through a discipleship program, the Lyft Discipleship Program. Um, my wife and I met there. We graduated from Lyft 13. I think they've had 50-some plus or minus Lyft sessions now um, of this discipleship training program. And I meet all people all the time who either know someone or have graduated themselves, and there's this immediate bond of understanding the shared values and what we got out of that time together and location, the beauty of that place. And there's an immediate bond. Some of you may have met somebody from your hometown in a context that was far removed from it. I I don't know that she's here today, but Hannah Gregory is actually from the same uh, town as I grew up in, little 3,000-person Bainbridge, New York, two hours southwest of here. And so when I met Hannah here one day, I'm like, oh, my goodness, I've how can you be from Bainbridge? Nobody's from Bainbridge. Me and my sister are from Bainbridge, and you are from Bainbridge. What are the odds, right? There's a bond there, this small little town where you, everybody knows everybody and all the little watering holes and everything. And so we, when you have a shared origin, there's a strong bond that comes with that. But there's no stronger bond that comes from the shared origin of being a part of the same family together. And this is why... Jesus can say, or the author of Hebrews can say that Jesus says in the second half of verse 11 there, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And by the way, that means brothers and sisters. The ESV that we use is a more literal translation, and so it just takes the words literally. But the the idea of the word is like we would say mankind today. We mean both men and women by that. 
this is why he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, because we share the same father. And so the author goes on to quote Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8, uh, these two Old Testament passages, both being used to show how the, the Messiah would identify with the people of God as his family. And so I'll read it again, verses 12 and 13. It says, this is Psalm 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. And by the way, just as a side note, when he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers, he's, Jesus, he's talking about Jesus is telling us about God in calling us brothers and sisters and says, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your God's praise to my brothers and sisters. That, that, that tells me Jesus is with us today, right? Singing God's praise with us. Um, congregation, that word congregation there, it's ecclesia. It's the Greek word that means church or assembly. Jesus is amidst, in our midst singing God's praises today with his brothers and sisters. And then he says in the Isaiah 8 quotation, Behold, I and the children God has given me. Jesus sees you and I as a gift to have us as brothers and sisters. He says is a gift. We've been given to him by God. But I want to pause in particular for a moment on that first thing the author of Hebrews says before he gets into those quotations. Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother or to call you sister. Do you believe that? Many of us have experienced shame. Sometimes we've been on the receiving. Sometimes we've been on the giving end of that, where you'll be hanging out with somebody and you like them, but um, you know they like you, but then all of a sudden like you're finding that they're distancing themselves from you when you're in a public place or in a situation where they're around their other friends. And it's because they're, they're a little shamed, something about us. Or maybe we've been in that position where we're happy to spend time with somebody and, you know, behind closed doors, but then we find ourselves with, with another social group and we just kind of find ourselves distancing ourselves from them. We're, we're ashamed to be seen with them. Jesus is not ashamed to be seen with you as his brother or as his sister. And by the way, not because of your good looks, although you may be good looking, not because how good you are at what you do, how popular you are, how funny you are, all these external things. Not because of your track record either and how obedient or disobedient that you've been. Jesus says to he's already said to us, you don't need to change yourself. You just need to let, you just need to trust me and let me change you. That's what it means. He, he, he's the sanctifier and we are the sanctified ones. He does the work of sanctification. Only he can make you pure and holy. And what is that based upon? Well, in verse 16, it says he helps the offspring of Abraham. Who are they? Well, what we know about Abraham, and it's especially developed by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament and Romans and elsewhere, is that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's faith. The offspring of Abraham are those who have faith in their big brother. That's all that Jesus asks of you. Trust him. He's not ashamed to be seen with you as his brother and sister. 
Faith is the great equalizer in that way. All right, we're, we're used to being accepted based upon our performance, based upon popularity, based upon externals. But Jesus just asks you to trust him. And if you trust him, however imperfectly, he is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. It's so precious. Do you think that way? Because Jesus does think that way about you. So Jesus closely identifies with us as his family because we share the same father. But there is a cost that came to him for that solidarity. So that's where we're going to shift gears into this second point. Because solidarity with us means suffering for Jesus. Why did Jesus have to become human? Especially according to this passage that we're in today. Why did he have to become human? And I say, why did he have to become human? Because that's what this text says in verse 17. He had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way. Why did he have to become human? So that he could die. His death was necessary to atone for or remove sins. That's what the word propitiation in verse 17 means, to atone for or remove sins. He had to die for that to happen. Last week, we saw from the text, this was the only pathway to glory for Jesus to become a man, to suffer and to die, both for him and for us. For us, we needed an atoning sacrifice that could take away our sins for good. Continual sacrifice of animals would just not cut it. Only a perfect man who had no sin and guilt could do this. And so God became a man in the form of his son Jesus to die in our place in order to bring many sons to glory. In order to bring you and I to glory, he had to become a man. He had to die. But it was the only pathway to glory for him as well through suffering because that's what full obedience to God looked like for Jesus. And so he had to walk the path all the way through the cross in order to return to his rightful place, his rightful glorious place as king of the universe. C.S. Lewis uh, has this great quote in which he talks about uh, the incarnation being like Jesus coming from above a pond where it's all light. And then he dives down into this pond, into the muck, into the weeds where we are. And I want to read it to you in full because it's just, a, it's just such a vivid way to capture what the incarnation, Jesus, God becoming man, what it really was. Here's what he says. And this comes from his book, Miracles. Or one may think of a diver first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water, into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure, into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting till suddenly he breaks the surface again, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing that he went down to recover. He and it are both colored now that they have come back up into the light. Down below where it lay colorless in the dark, he lost his color too. And then he continues the same idea, but with a different metaphor. In this descent and reascent, everyone will recognize a familiar pattern, a thing written all over the world. It is the pattern of all vegetable life. It must belittle itself into something hard, small, and death-like. It must fall into the ground. Thence, the new life reascends. So the only pathway to glory, both for Jesus and for us, was in him becoming a human so that he could suffer and die for us. It was the only path, the only way. Now, 
Verse 10 talks about the necessity of Jesus' suffering. But there's some tricky concepts here or some tricky ideas theologically. A couple of them. Number one, how is what God did, that is to send his son to die, how is that fitting? It may make some of you uncomfortable, understandably. And then secondly, what does it mean that Jesus was made perfect through suffering? So first of all, this idea that it was fitting for God to send his son to die. That word fitting, it means an appropriate fit. It's appropriate that God was to do this. Another way you could ask this question is, how was that in line with God's character? Well, at least in two ways. Number one, God is holy. So sin must be punished. For justice to be done, someone had to pay a price. But God is also love. The greatest love that we could possibly know that this world has ever seen. And you know what love does? It pursues that picture we just, that vivid picture metaphor we just got from C.S. Lewis of Jesus diving down into the depths, into the muck. It pursues, it goes after. That's exactly what the incarnation was. Jesus came after us. And so it's fitting then in that there had to be a price paid because of God's holiness. But it's also fitting because in God's love, he chose to pay that price himself. And then we're told that through this, Jesus was made perfect, that God made perfect his son through suffering. So we'll talk about that idea of perfect briefly here in a moment. But let me just point out in your translation and in mine, it may say suffering. And what we don't necessarily see at the surface, that's plural. That, that sufferings, multiple sufferings. Because it's not just the cross in view. But again, it's this idea of solidarity, Jesus identifying with you and me and our humanity that there's so much suffering, so much brokenness in this life. It isn't just confined to what what he did on the cross, but it's a picture of the fact he identified with us through not having a place to lay his head at times when he was doing his earthly ministry. The rejection that he faced by so many people around him who opposed him. The disloyalty, right? the stabbing in his back of Judas, others who betrayed him or who left him for a time. Jesus experienced all kinds of sufferings, and so he can identify with us in that regard. So that idea of suffering here is plural. It's more than the cross that's in view, even if that's preeminently what's in view. How did God make Jesus perfect through the sufferings? Well, the idea here is not flaw. It is not that Jesus was sinful and somehow needed to be sanctified. Perfection here in Hebrews and elsewhere in the New Testament is used to mean the completion of something making it all the way to the end of a certain path or course that you have set out on. That is the idea of perfection here. One pastor put it in a way I found helpful. He said, it's not moving from sinfulness to sinlessness, but as being human, it's moving from untested sinlessness to tested mature sinlessness. Again, for that glory to be achieved by Jesus, both for him and for us, he would have to complete perfect the path that was before him, which came at the cost of great suffering. And yet what came at the cost of great suffering to him resulted in salvation for us. So here's the last portion that I want us to see that the author of Hebrews is presenting for us today. Let me step back for a moment, just say that kind of big idea sentence so we can see where we are. Jesus' solidarity with us, his identity with us and his humanity and in sharing the same Father means suffering for him and salvation for us. Salvation from what, though? 
Well, salvation from the consequences of our sin, namely from death. Verse 14 says this, Since therefore the children can share in flesh and blood, that's referring to us, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So for Jesus to abolish death, there had to be a death, and that death was his own. The best um, analogy I've heard, and I've slightly tweaked it, but is imagine that a father and a son were out on a camping trip together, miles away from civilization in any direction, and they're, they've, they've zipped up their tent for the night, and all of a sudden they hear this, this buzzing sound, and it's, it's a bee that's in the tent with them. And a uh, little backdrop to raise the stakes, both the father and the son are allergic to bees, and on top of that, they've left their EpiPen in the car seven miles away. So that's not an option in this case, all right? But the bee is between them and the zipper door, and the kid is freaking out a little bit. And this bee is angry. And so the bee lands on the kid, and it's just about ready to sting it. And the father reaches out, and he scoops up that bee. And before he can crush him, the bee stings the man. So it wouldn't even have mattered at this point now if the bee was crushed, because what happens and TJ, you can tell me if I'm wrong later, but at least with some bees, if they use their stinger, that's it. It's a one-shot deal. So the father took this sting so that the son didn't have to. The bee is dead. This is like what Jesus did for us. This is how he took the sting out of death. As he stepped in and he died so that we did not have to. That's what the author is presenting here. So there's two things that I want you to see that Jesus' death accomplished. Two things, at least, that are presented in this passage. Number one, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, the devil. How does Satan have the power of death? Um, Well, we know from the New Testament that he is the father of lies. We know from Genesis 3 that he is the great tempter. Temptation entered the world through Satan and Sin entered through temptation, and death entered through sin. In this way, Satan, the devil, had the power of death. Right? This is what he's about. Satan came, it says in John 10.10, 10, to, to steal, to kill, and destroy. His main objective is to bring death into this world, particularly to, the, to humanity. Jesus absorbed that death in himself. So that in the ultimate sense, death no longer has power over us. Why do we know that? Because Jesus was the forerunner of showing us what happens. He rose from the dead. He did not stay dead. And we have the same hope to look forward to ourselves. So Jesus destroyed death by destroying the one who has the power of death. But he also, number two, in verse 15, delivered us from the slavery of the fear of death. Verse 15 says, and, he, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, it's interesting because it doesn't say deliver us from death. And we know that in a sense, all of us will face, face death. But he delivered us from the fear of death. Most surveys on people's greatest fear will include death at some point on that survey. A lot of times it's one of the top ones. And just to make sure that 
Things haven't changed all that much because I remember hearing that statistic two decades ago. I went back and looked at some surveys that were more contemporary, and sure enough, it's on there. And even where it isn't explicitly on there, most of the top ten lists, 50% or more included things that were associated with death. Fear of flying, a fear of heights, a fear of violent weather, a fear of snakes and spiders, a fear of blood, a fear of disease. All of those are related to the fact that death is possible through these things or that they remind us of our mortality. In the ancient world, people were especially terrified of death. Pagan philosophers wrote about it all the time because they were powerless against it. It was inescapable, and so their lives began to revolve around this fear of death. And when you fear death, you are enslaved to it. That fear may begin to dictate your decisions and your actions and the way that you think, both consciously and subconsciously. You may never take risks in life, even reasonable ones, if you fear death. Some people's fear of death may cut themselves off from loved ones because of an unwillingness to travel. Fear of death can sometimes result in an obsessive pursuit of health. And this can be a difficult one to identify because we are called to steward our bodies, to take care of our bodies. That's a good thing. But when there's an obsessive pursuit of health in our lives, um, that's because of a fear of death and it becomes all-consuming. And in extreme cases, some people will be unwilling to leave their homes because there's the prospect of injury or harm coming to them. There's a fear of death. And at the very least, when there's a fear of death in your life, it's like this low-level anxiety always in the back of your mind. But this life is going to come to an end, and I could do nothing to stop that. That's a description of slavery. That's what Jesus came to set us free from. So how did he do that? Well, this is how the first and second things that we see in view here work together. Because Jesus has defeated death and the one who had the power of death, death no longer has the final say. And so we don't have to fear it anymore. Now, it's still scary on a level, right? Because death in and of itself, the process of dying and death, it's an unknown. Nobody here has ever been through it personally before, right? So it's an unknown, and unknown things tend to scare us. But for a Christian... Death is more like a doorway than an end in and of itself. Because the best is yet to come. And when you have that perspective, it's a game changer. Um, I wish that when I was a kid, I knew how much freedom I had to do whatever the heck I wanted. Kids, if you're here today, realize how precious this season of life is. And the latitude that you have to be able to explore your world and... Not everybody is afforded that luxury, but a lot of us are when we're kids, as we have our parents absorbing the lion's share of responsibility and providing for the family and creating an environment where we can be nurtured and grow and explore our horizons. And I just did not appreciate that when I was a kid, like I do now. Oh, to go back, right? And then the older you get, the more responsibility you tend to take on. Um, whether it's careers and moving your way up in a career, you take on more responsibility, whether it's families that you start to have to provide for. And you, if you grow a family, there's increasing complexities that come with that. And if you own a home, there's complexities that come with owning a home and fixing a home or a piece of property. Pretty soon, there's so little margin in life that if you're not careful, you can begrudge what you can no longer do. And this may be a different angle on this topic of how we are freed from the fear of death. It's more of a how we're free, freed from a fear of missing out on life. 
Uh, but this has been a game changer for me in terms of my perspective. As I get older and as I have more responsibility, um, there are many things that I would like to do, uh, many things I'd like to experience. Um, and a lot of those I will never have the opportunity to, most likely, at this point in my life. But that's okay. Because death is not the end. Between now and whenever God calls me home is not my only opportunity to experience all the things in life I'd want to experience. Now, I don't know exactly if all the things I won't get to do now, I will be able to in heaven. I tend to to think that, yes, the new heavens and the new earth will be more like, but even better than this world, this life. And we will do the same things and more. But even if that were not true, what I do know with confidence is that we will not complain. And what amazing consolation that is for us. That is one of the ways in which Jesus freed us from the slavery of a fear of death. This is not all that there is. The best is yet to come. As we come full circle, I want to land looking at one more piece of solidarity that Jesus has with us. That's kind of outside that big summary statement that I read up front. And it comes from verses 17 and 18. I'll read those to you again, and then we'll unpack that briefly. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And then hear this piece in particular. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. See, another way that Jesus experiences solidarity with you and me is that he identifies with your suffering in temptation. This is the beginning of the author's case that he makes, by the way, for Jesus being a better high priest than the earthly high priests that Israel had known throughout their history. And that's a, a concept and a theme he'll develop throughout this letter. But here's who a high priest was in Israel, and here's how Jesus is a better high priest. A high priest in Israel was somebody who first, as it says in Hebrews 5.1, was chosen from among the people to act on their behalf in relation to God. It was a man chosen from among the people of God, Israel. Jesus was a man. Secondly, they offered sacrifices on behalf of the people over and over again. Jesus also offered a sacrifice. But that sacrifice was himself a once-for-all sacrifice far better than any of the sacrifices the earthly high priests ever offered. And then thirdly, these earthly high priests could empathize with the people that they were interceding interceding for because they also were weak and they also were broken and of themselves. Now, Jesus never sinned, but he understands your weakness. He understands temptation and the suffering that comes from enduring temptation. In fact, he understands it better than you do and I do. Again, C.S. Lewis has this great quote where he talks about how you and I don't feel the full force of temptation because all of us at some point have given into it. Jesus never did. Here's what his quote says. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. In Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows the full weight of what temptation means. The only complete realist. Jesus gets it. And he empathizes with you in your own struggle against sin. 
And then he takes that empathy with him up into the Trinity. God understands. He doesn't justify our sin, but he knows the struggle. And he knows it better even than we do. So a part of Jesus' ongoing ministry to us is he already sacrificed himself for us as the high priest would make a sacrifice, but he has this continuing ongoing ministry of empathy toward us as he intercedes on our behalf on the basis of his shed blood, yes, but on, also on the basis of understanding the human experience. And that suffering comes from living in this broken world because he was fully human. And so in a moment, as you come forward for communion, I want to encourage you this morning to consider the solidarity of Christ with us in his humanity. He died for you. His brother, his sister, which you are because you share the bond of a common father. And he understands your struggle against sin. He gets it. Even as he calls you to trust him, even as he calls you to walk in his way, he understands your frailty. He doesn't reject you because you failed again last night or maybe this morning. But he does call you to turn and to trust him again. And with all the options that you have at your disposal for where you could turn in your struggle, Where would you rather turn than the one who left glory, the one who humbled himself to endure the same struggle that you have, far worse even, in order to bring you back to glory with him? That's the one. That's the one who's worth returning to. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for being a humble God. We praise you for being a loving God. And we praise you for revealing that through the incarnation of your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would awaken us whose default is to be immune to the beauty and power of Christ's humanity and his identity with us as a human. And I pray that you would encourage those here whose default is to never be able to imagine that Jesus wouldn't be ashamed of us as his brother or his sister. I pray that the the truth that he has declared, that he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, would seep deeply into the hearts of those who carry a great weight of shame today. And I pray that you deliver them from that shame. Thank you that you defeated death. Thank you that you've delivered us from a fear of death. And I pray that you would enable us then through that to live full of hope and strength 